Hey folks, welcome. It's the Unsung Podcast. I'm Mark, once again joined by my good friend Christopher. I've had your good friend. You are a good That's friend. The first time you've ever said that. It is only it? took six and a half years. I don't think it is. <laughs> I think it is. I would have remembered because I've got a wee tear in my eye. Right a wee now. tear in your eye. It never happens. I don't think it's because of that, what I just said. <laughs> well, maybe we're all just excessively emotional because of this music. Yeah, some really dark emotions. And so, that's that's our recurring theme. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the word dark, as we said, is going to get overused uh, oh. to the point of meaninglessness. Yeah. Um, so this is the second part of our uh, dive into the Hexan Cloaks excavation. Excavation. Album. Yep. And by getting there by way of all of his other uh, recorded output. Yeah, uh, the EPs, the two records proper, mm-hmm. um, another couple of releases, and uh, then we touched on a couple of his early 40s and movie themes mm. and soundtracking and stuff. Yeah. Um, I think we'll probably pick up from there. In fact, no, you know what? Before we pick up from there and go back into movies, I want to give a mention to Red Dead Redemption 2. Yeah, I'm not entirely sure what he did on this soundtrack. <laughs> so, um, so they did a Halloween pass. Like ah, a, so it was like an expansion pack sort of thing. Yeah, uh-huh. like an alternative... A DLC. Uh, ...thing. Yeah, they did games. that. Did that with the first one. They had like a... like The first one had a, an expansion which was like Undead Nightmare and it was basically all zombies and stuff and it was like a lot of fun, so... Yeah, so the Halloween pass uh, involved him collaborating with the band Swans. Oh! I don't know if it was a full band, it's certainly Michael Gira. Mm. This is in 2020. It is a predictably grim uh, but effective collaboration. It's a fairly grim game, if I'm totally honest, mate. So yeah, yeah so <laughs> I've heard. Uh, it's um, the music's not as hi-fi as he's usually output, and I think that's probably down to the analog tendencies of Swans, and also because of the nature of the game. You know, it's set in the old west, so yeah. it kind of helps the atmosphere. Bit more grainy. Mm. Um, I think it's more interesting as a result. Um, the track, I think, well, I, the name I saw given was Fear of Us Avatar. I've no idea what that actually means. Um, Swans have injected some really interesting melodic guitar stuff around about two and a half minutes into mm-hmm. this track. And it's just unfortunate to me that it's buried behind this really rattly drum part. Because it kind of sounds like those guitar lines could have been the money shot in this song mm-hmm. and they're a bit hidden. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's alright, it's interesting, it's grim, it's atmospheric. Uh, and then we get to Returnal, um, mm. a video game. Uh, Mark, you like this? <laughs> this is one of my favourite games I've ever played in my life. give you a bit of background in the game first and why I love it so much. So, 
I'm going to go on a little bit of a tangent here, but hopefully listeners will go with me. And if I'm not super into video games, I used to be into them a lot more, but I'm going to let fly some opinions here and people can shoot me down or not. So this is one of the highlights, I guess, of PS5 so far, which has been out for a few years now. And this is one of the only games that actually lives up to the technical promise of the console. And when I say that, I mean... It's uh, 60 FPS, 60 frames per second, and it's at 4K resolution. So it, is, it looks amazing. It plays super well. It's been built for the ground up just for the PS5. Yeah. And it, it's one of the most beautiful games I've ever seen as well, just as a result of I feel like exploiting the capabilities of the console. I think it was a few days ago, Sony said that the PS5 is now entering the end of its life cycle, the latter part of its life cycle. Which, if that is the case, then it makes the, the it would make this generation of console the one of the most underwhelming there's ever been. So, so much technical promise has been like put up on the PS5 and the Xbox uh, Series X and stuff like that. But none of them have ever really lived up to the potential of what a game like Eternal is, offers, which is games that run at a really high frame rate that also run at a really high rev- resolution. Usually, most games will give you an option to switch between one or the other. Yeah, and you don't get it together. Um, and I'm not entirely sure why that is. Um, hopefully we'll get some more games that can do that further down the line. Um, but that's my technical opinion on it. <laughs> um, okay. I mean, as an outsider, I guess that that custom built thing, you know, if you make a game only for one system, you're limiting mm. your income potential from that game. Mm. But by making it for that system, you're able to tailor it fully to the, capa- the, the capabilities of that system. Yeah. So you end up with a better product, but it's got a much more limited audience. Yeah. Um, so I, I yeah I kind of get that. Um, I I watched some playthrough videos of it to try and get an appreciation. It's intense and frantic. Uh, it, it was cool. I mean, mm. it's, it's so far removed from the video game, and I did. I mean, you know, a little bit of insight here. I got a really addictive personality, mm-hmm. so I gave up gaming pretty early because I knew I was going to waste an awful lot of my time doing it if I didn't. So yeah, I get it. I get the appeal. It's fascinating. It's really immersive and cool. Um, the music is suited. Very much so. Um, um, I mean, this sounds like Hacks and Cloak. So in that sense, it feels pretty natural. It's mm-hmm. a soundtrack, but it does also just sound pretty close to what Hacks and Cloak might put out as a record. I think his music works much better in this context. I can imagine this complementing a visual medium that relies on tension, mm-hmm. uh, such as, uh, you know, as this game does. Like, for example, the third track in this soundtrack is, is uh, Helios. would feel pretty pointless on record to me, but I can, uh, I can totally see it being very effective in mm-hmm. context. Yeah, I think you're right, you know. So this record, when it was released, fans of the game Returnal were actually quite disappointed because it's missing all the music from the boss battles, which is in itself quite glorious. But I think I actually think it hangs together quite well as a collection of songs anyway. Quote-unquote quote, like, quote songs. I mean. Yeah, if you like Hacks and Cloak, mm. it doesn't feel like a massive departure. Yeah, exactly. It's what I'm kind of getting at. I 
I also think just to refer back to the conversation we had in part one of the show, uh, Sidey, um, the video game soundtracking lark offers artists a lot more latitude than the movie approach. But I imagine they have to be created in such a way, whereas where they can be stretched out. Yeah, over like much do, like the so one of the things about the boss songs which is on the second vo- volume of the tunnel which was released a year later is that they are significantly shorter than they would be in the game because fighting anyone in the bosses doesn't take four, four or five minutes it takes like ten yeah. because they've got three stages and they're, they're really difficult and yeah. you'll die a lot you know yeah. yeah I mean I just know again second hand from friends that have gone from recorded music to soundtracking to now video game soundtracking they're finding the video game soundtracking more fulfilling and much more creatively uh, liberating uh, mm. as opposed to TV and film. Like yeah. Big time. It's apparently, I'm, I'm f- informed for, for both people I know that are doing it. It's just great. Mm-hmm. And I can, you can think you can hear that in the music that he's produced. It, it feels more like him. Mm-hmm. Um, won a BAFTA for the soundtrack for the best, best video game score. Oh well, um, good for him. And it's re- I think it's really good. You know, it's, the game itself is quite frantic. It's it's a roguelike, which means it's a game where every single time you die, you go back to the start. Yeah, you lose everything, um, and it's fucking rock solid. I put 150 hours into it. Right, that's how fucking much I played the game. I read that it took 60 hours to complete it. Yeah, but so I, you just shite a video game. No, I, I got everything. I got I got platinum, so I did everything in it above and beyond the actual story. Right. Um, and I also got oh, really really fucking good at it as quest. a result. Yeah, I got really I'm really really good at it as well because it's diff- it's really difficult. I, I know a few people that have played it and bounced off it because it's like it's just too hard and it takes too long to get good to actually enjoy it but the soundtrack is quite cool because there's a leap motif which kind of goes throughout it and you hear it quite clearly in about the two minute mark of the first the first track in this mm. the, uh, the crash Um, it's this kind of weird string sound. It's kind of alien and unknowable because you're on a really hostile alien planet yourself. Um, you always, yeah. I mean, is yeah. that not just? But the, the thing that the thing that makes us another us day get, another hostile alien. Planet. The thing that makes us quite interesting is that it doesn't hold your hand with the narrative. You need to go and find everything yourself. And even when you do complete the game and and you do everything in it, it's still not quite clear what it's about yeah. or what the narrative thread that goes through it is. You just kind of know that you're an astronaut that crash lands on a planet you shouldn't have landed on. And every single time you die, you go back to the start of when you crashed. Eventually, when you finish the game, you get off the planet. And one of the best twists, I think, of a game that I've ever seen is like you then get Are you spoiler alert? Spoiler alert here, yeah. Um once you once you finish the game you get off the planet and you go back home and you get a series of vignettes as the protagonist loves their life and then they get old and they die and then they wake up on the planet back to where they be- where they where they began basically. So it's like it really kind of plays with that existential dread that it's pretty bleak. Yeah, it's a bleak fucking game, man. It plays with that existential dread that Hacks and Cloaks music has, right? Because it's like you're caught in a loop that you can never, ever, ever get out of. There's yeah. a lot of cool things in it as well, like right. you are the bad guy and stuff. It's pretty pretty fun. But What what you were um, saying about the sinister, tough, sort of the, 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 the opaque nature of the, the, the narrative, the fact that there's something ominous, but you're not really clued in, even <laughs> when it finishes, you're still trying to fill in a lot of the blanks. That's fairly true of a lot of the Hacks and Cloaks sort of narrative, inverted commas, driven records as well you're like 
okay, I, I know there's a narrative here. I'm kind of struggling to see it, but, uh, you know, I'm piecing it together. Mm. Um, but we mentioned Beef. Yeah, so Beef is interesting. It's a really good TV show, kind of quirky show. Mm-hmm. Um, 2023. Yeah, there's a lot of needle drops in that show. So um, there's a couple of interviews with him where he talks about having to kind of make the music around the needle drops in the show. Um, there's a lot of popular songs that just come in throughout. Yeah. Um, have you seen it? No. It is a wonderful TV show. It is... It's basically a a, a story of revenge between two people. One cuts up another one in traffic and it just gets more and more and more absurd over the course of the entire series as they try to get revenge on each other for stupid shit. Cool thing about the soundtrack though is that it's very radio-heady. Very bandy. It's completely different from anything he's done. It's odd that you say Radiohead. I didn't get that. I mean, this feels so out with his wheelhouse in terms of style. Mm-hmm. I'm not even really sure why he got the gig. I think the music sounds more like Soul Wax. I mean, and it does offset that with the odd kind of really sinister passage. Towards the end, it gets electronic again. I mean, again, it's just really technically accomplished. I just, I don't know, just whatever. I I, I didn't really see why this was a hacks and cloak job. Mm. I think, I I wonder why he got that gig, because it is quite interesting. But I guess he's also able to stretch his skills and deploy them in different ways. Mm. He also did the soundtrack for Paper Girls, which which was a pretty, I thought it was a pretty cool show at sadly cancelled after one season that came out in 2022 kind of Stranger Things vibe it's about time travel set in the 80s And it's got that kind of Stranger Things kind of soundtrack feel to it as well so it's quite, it's quite an interesting listen it's got that almost like the Perturbator-esque power electronics in it in places. Yeah. And it's quite it's quite cool to hear him deploy that. Uh, I guess we'll round off his back catalogue with that NY single that he brought out mm-hmm. again under Hacks and Cloak. First thing he'd done in Very moody. a decade or so. Um, 2023, big fucking plug-in chops with cool reverbs and things like that. A lot of like really good tech, mm-hmm. <laughs> expensive tech being used here. He lives in uh, Silver Lake, Los Angeles now, so he's he moved there in 2016. And when you see some interviews, like there's some of the interviews on YouTube with him and getting interviewed in his house, man, he's just like in a room full of like, analog synths. <laughs> yeah, well, but I think you can hear a lot of plug-in stuff in this as well. It's an interesting bit of music. It's grim, it's eerie, but it's also quite confrontational. It's 
got some PC percussion in it, but it all sounds a bit Bristol, Sursa 2000. It does, doesn't it? Yeah. Like trip hoppy sort of stuff. It reminds me of burial in, pl- burial in places, actually. Yeah, yeah, actually. Aye, that'd be a, that'd be a good reference. Um, there's no question of the technical proficiency. Again, and even I think he has like there's a kind of confident sense of mission in this tune, you know, sinister, vaguely traumatic, kind of punishing. And the percussion kind of maybe unlocks that a bit and makes it a little bit more enjoyable than some of his other stuff. Um, Right, so at at this point though, right, that song, Out the Road, I have to say, I know he's got other releases, but I was losing the fucking will to live. It was an intensive week it is a dreary fucking music. We used that word in the first episode and arduous is definitely the, the, the adjective to use. So after that punishingly miserable week of listening it did remind me of past punishingly miserable listening experiences so i wanted to give a nod to what i see as i mean these are very possibly people that he cited in interviews i'm sorry after hearing what he had to say musically i wasn't really in a rush to go and read his interviews as well but doesn't do me any to be fair good <laughs> good so i missed less um what he does like that that, that sense of like brutally oppressive anti-music that teeters i think quite frequently on the brink of pure concept as opposed to music i think that's fair obvious sense it's been done really well for a long time um i think especially given the electronic elements since the 1980s and so i wanted to kind of shine a light on a few acts that Mm -hmm. i think maybe people listening will be very familiar maybe people will decide to really like hacks and cloak and want to track it back or maybe these are just names that some folk will be like aye will be shouting it at yeah. aye it's definitely him aye aye <laughs> fucking aye him because they'll be like mention mention lost mord <laughs> right <laughs> fucking here I go lost mord <laughs> Paradise Disowned album in 1984 is a great example of this. I mean, it's an album that, uh, the best way I can describe it is it almost vanishes from sight at points. It's so minimalist. Yet others makes absolutely no secret of the fact that it mainly just wants you to feel deeply unsettled Mm -hmm. when you're listening to it. time it, I mean, to some extent it was pushing the boundaries of the available technology i mean Hacks and cloak lives and operates in a time when the things that he's doing are so well within our capabilities mm. like i said it's, it's plug-in central mm. like really you could do a lot of this in autopilot if you really wanted to lust more you know uh adopts a lot of similar techniques to Hacks and cloak or the other way around rather but uh number three on that paradise disowned album dreams of dead names is Every bit the equal of the absolute abyssal misery mm-hmm. of the darkest hacks and cloak mm-hmm. stuff. It is 
morose and I think the fourth one on it which I think is fairly well known uh, Pyre brackets Necrochristi mm-hmm. um, it opens with a scream so it's got a jump scare mm. because it comes right on the back of Dreams of Dead Names And I think that's actually really a parallel with some of Hacks and Cloak's jump scares yeah. as well. Because he does audio jump scares sometimes. Another act that I would reference, uh, Nurse With Wound. I mean, Nurse With Wound's been going since the 80s, but the record I would point to would be Who Can I Turn To Stereo, which is 1996, actually. Um, there's a track on it, uh, the ninth one, Monument to Perez Prado, which like explores almost identical musical landscapes, albeit in maybe in a slightly more rudimentary form, because it's 1996. making electronic music on much more primitive machines. Um, An obvious one to cite would be Coil, um, very famous band affiliated with Nine Inch Nails and stuff as well as the original industrial noise movement. There's actually a Coil record called Backwards and it's not really canon for big Coil fans. But I think just generally the stuff that Coyle did in the mid-90s, you can hear the techniques, a lot of them, the reverse distorted symbols that get used all the time. Uh, basically after, like Coyle did this album called Love's Secret Domain, which was like a really like important watershed moment for them. And then after that, they'd start recording, say, tracks, but I mean, I think they saw them as songs. And for that very reason, they would reject them because they would listen to them back after they'd recorded them and be like, this is so conformist. This is so boring. <laughs> And they were basically driving themselves as a result to these more and more obscure, uh, extreme places in their quest to just reject these conformist bits of music. But the thing is, Backwards is effectively a collection of those conformist reject bits of music, and it's got some great stuff in it. A lot of it was recorded at Nothing Studios, you know, um, yeah. Resner Studios. Um, and so, I don't know how many Coil fans, but so, I know that some Coil fans are unhappy it was ever released as the band had effectively rejected the material. But I do think it's a really interesting insight into them crafting that direction, that extreme direction. And it undoubtedly informs Hacks and Cloak in terms of what he's doing musically. Um, Another one, 
problematic. Uh, current, I mean, fucking hell, so much of the industrial and noise scene mm-hmm. in the 80s is problematic. Like, I'm, I'm absolutely avoiding so many of these fuckers. But uh, current 93... Uh, the album Nature Unveiled, 1984, probably the height of his problematic behaviour. Um, extremely adventurous and groundbreaking in its extremity and its weirdness. And it's also got a playfulness. I mean, it's harsh. It's fucking nasty. But it's also a bit goofy at points, and that's not something that Axe and Cloak has. But other points of it are just sheer trauma, like really fucking misanthropic. And a good bit later in current 93's canon, 1995, it was in the midst of a inmost light trilogy thing and there's a record that's part of that called All the Pretty Little Horses and that delves deep into the textural sinister stuff adding quite a lot of narration a little more every day the wind blows so slowly now the trees are dry dead walls to me they cannot hold back the storm Any literal voice narration really unsettling at times but maybe with a slightly clearer narrative arc mm-hmm. than you get with Hicks and Cloak because clearly there's no vocal in there so you know you're implying a lot of it um all of which I guess is to say that of course musicians will have predecessors. I'm not shitting on Hacks and Cloak because people did stuff before Hacks and Cloak that sounded like it. Um, I think what's interesting is that Hacks and Cloak seems to have captured an unprecedented level of mainstream acclaim that those predecessors, who were largely very underground and undoubtedly a lot of his contemporary peers, did not and have not. Axe and Cloak has met with so much critical acclaim and awards. So many people have done what Axe and Cloak is doing. I think he's a totally capable producer, musician, but his status, his success is, to me, a cultural phenomenon rather than a musical one. And I'd quite like us to look at that cultural phenomenon in a wee bit of detail. Okay. Um, And I think one of the lenses via which to look at that is press reaction. Just as a barometer, both in terms of like, they're gatekeepers, right? We did all this on the Pitchfork episode. Pitchfork, rest in peace, cross yourself, you know, fairly well. If you can be bothered, go back in our canon and listen to the Pitchfork episode that we did. It's a double episode. We really tried to pick apart the uh, chicken and egg thing of supply, demand, public opinion, gatekeeping, the press reflecting ideas versus the press sort of helping to facilitate the Mm -hmm. spread of ideas. Um, and this is very applicable to music. I'm going to use the needle drop, Anthony Fantano, for the first exhibit, exhibit A. Uh, in his review of excavation, uh, he did actually, I think, quite astutely compare it to Lust Mord in terms of Sinister Chops. He was on the mo- uh, on, on point there. Um, 
One thing that really struck me about Anthony Fantano's review of this is the content versus the final score. So he said, uh, quote, a lot of these tracks on this LP don't really rise in a way that is traditionally exciting in music. I should point out that he actually says it more like a lot of these tracks on this LP don't really rise in a a way that is traditionally exciting in music. Mm -hmm. (laughs) As though that somehow makes that less of a severe sentence. Mm -hmm. It's a fucking hell of a euphemism anyway. And he he then, he grudgingly, almost apologetically, acknowledges that a lot of this album, quote, drags out without, quote, any sonic detail and that tracks become, quote, boring. Mm -hmm. And he then says, there are moments that I do wish the sonic palette was a little wider another euphemism, and quote, that the structures or rhythms behind these tracks weren't quite so basic. Uh, And then towards the end of his review, he talks about the shorter songs feeling a bit half-baked and underdeveloped. And he then goes on to give it 8 out of 10. Mm. (laughs) And after edging towards what is like, I must say a bad review, because he's very positive about other parts of it, but certainly a a bit mediocre, he then gives it this high score. He goes uh, a seven or a soft eight and then ends up giving it an eight. And the psychology behind that, to me, really, it feels like it really undergirds the entire hacks and cloak phenomenon. You know, there's a bit in that that review where Fantano says, uh, and this is a quote, the strings creep like drops of blood from the horrible torture chamber that all these sounds are clearly coming from. (laughs) Right? That's fucking elaborate, okay? Mm -hmm. That's an intense image and it's an elaborate one, right? The reviewer would have you believe that the music thrust those images into his brain, right? And maybe it did. Maybe the music did thrust images of dripping blood and torture chambers, right? But there's also a world where you're listening to a record and you're trying to make sense of it. You're trying to manifest something that ties together what you're hearing. This is, by the way, why I think Hacks and Cloak is so applicable to film, because it visually ties together what you're hearing in a way that it maybe, as I said, when they're decontextualized, the sound co- the soundtracks don't really make sense mm-hmm. or don't work. Um, and I think that in this case, it's not just that Fantano is trying to make sense of it. I think he, m- he feels he must make sense of it. And I, I, I think what he's doing there, it's not the hacks and cloaks work. He's doing his own work. This is the listener's work. And that kind of pisses me off about this sort of thing, right? Because once you have that blessing you know, once you're a made man, mm-hmm. you know, the artist doesn't really have to do all that much. And Hacks and Cloak generally doesn't do all that much. He doesn't need to. Like the consensus is that Hacks and Cloak is brilliant. And to avoid breaking with that consensus is to risk looking stupid. You know, you just don't get it. And the viewer in this case, but the audience in general is left to conjure up some imagined genius process or interpretation and I am always left thinking like is it even there mm-hmm. you know Fantano is doing the heavy lifting in that and I think he's illustrating what a lot of people are doing when they listen to it which is trying to like you know and the narrative the story the supposed concept of the album plays a big part in that as well my exhibit B would be Pitchfork again rest in peace uh, Pitchfork's uh, quote it's an album sequenced with a central narrative in mind the bass hits continue to punch in that sinking feeling and the beats add a dramatic flourish, always emphasising that this is a place of sickness, not security. Do I, don't, I don't mind that at all. It's nicely written, mm-hmm. but at this point, can we not just project basically whatever we want 
onto this music because it's so neutral. I mean, it's not neutral, it's miserable, but there's so little to oppose our interpretations that we can basically add anything we want on top. And I think I just started to get a little bit irked at the vagueness. I'm not, I'm maybe not articulating that. Right, so here, here's a better way to illustrate it, right? The red flag to me, right? It was difficult to find negative press about Hacks and Cloak. It's a terrible thing to go and look for a bad review of someone, but after a while I was like, fuck's sake, I just want to find even a vaguely bad review. And for a sound that's this esoteric, that raises alarm bells for me. So none of these major blogs, none of these magazines handed this album to a writer who was like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> because, you know, you put this on in front of the majority of people, the majority of people, they're going to be like, what the fuck is this music? Is it, what is this? Is this even music? And they all gave it to someone they knew would give it a proper listen. Yes, on one hand, that's really positive. You've got a sympathetic audience, you've got an attuned ear or a trained ear, someone that is able to write a coherent review of a very esoteric sound, right? But on another level, this was given to people that they knew would give it a... They, they, they knew the kind of review that was going to come out of that. As a music writer for a while, having had my own negative reviews pulled in favour of positive reviews by other writers, you know, the job is handed off to someone, no, I'm not publishing that one, you do a different one. I would be amazed if that hadn't also taken place around Hacks and Cloak's work. That's not Hacks and Cloak's fault, but I would be amazed once he was a made man if that hadn't also happened. Because music that risks as much as this, because he does take a lot of risks with this, it's a weird kind of music. If he goes this far out, any music that goes that far out in a limb, it, it should, in my opinion, be subject to mixed reactions because that's the point of difficult music. It's not intended to be absolutely unanimously acclaimed. So when extremely esoteric music like this meets with unanimous acclaim, I'm like, I'm sorry, like something else is at work there for me. I just, I have got fucking red flags all over by Hacks and Cloak. And it's not necessarily Hacks and Cloak's fault, mm -hmm. but Hacks and Cloak is a fucking made man. And that made me push back. So I'm ready to discuss the album now. <laughs> That's interesting. You feel free to comment or we can rip into the record and maybe that'll give us um, a battleground upon which to... I just, like I said, I came across it because it, it popped up with some end of year lists and you listen to all the records and none of them, some of them click you, some of them don't. And just the sheer oppressiveness of this one was quite startling for me, you know, and, com and oddly compelling. It's not something I would listen to a lot because you can't listen to this record a lot. You no. wouldn't, like, you don't put it on. It's like Midsummer. Yeah. Honestly, like it's not something that bears repeated what viewings. But I enjoyed, I enjoy what it says, and I enjoy the, I enjoy the challenge of it, you know. And I think that's pretty cool. So I, d I do want to be really fair, and I did say this in the first part as well. I do totally get, given the fact you have such a head for production, given your love of hip hop, given the amount that we have riffed on. Like you, you introduced me to Jay Dilla. You introduced me to a lot of like hip hop production, and I get from a techie side of it, why you would be so fascinated, especially with how good he is at handling low frequencies. You know, you're you're a big um, Run The Jewels fan. There's a lot of power. Um, what's the guy from Run The Jewels as well? LP. LP. The production side of it, I get. He's a yeah. very, very good producer. And it, I can absolutely see how engaging that would be. You know, if, if you're some guy that loves guitar pedals, listening to bands that play with weird guitar yeah, pedals, exactly, it's uh -huh. fascinating, right? I think one thing... The LP thing is interesting because there's a, there's a darkness, there's always like a sort of weird paranoia mm -hmm. about his music which conjures images in my head.
And you can tell that maybe time is out of joint, my love So this is maybe just an SOS Shrapnel, an echo of dead sentiment Measurement tossed and nothing for no one away. And that's conjures quite a lot of images in my head as well um, Most of them, like you said, abyssal <laughs> um, But I think that's cool And I, I, I haven't really heard much music like this So maybe it, maybe it totally got me Because it was completely fresh to my ears I've never heard anything like it So I was like, I'm actually kind of enthralled by the ethos behind this yeah. you know and well, the, so the label that he's on triangle has a, a whole host mm. of records that are yeah. <laughs> of a similar mindset mm. um well uh, like i said i think vessel mm. well at least in the stuff that i've heard uh is the best of those. okay let's um, talk about it a little bit let's then. talk about it mm. yeah yeah so starts off with consumed which is a really kind of an intro basically kind of i mean consumed is a statement title Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> like we said, this is his second record. It's supposedly part of this concept. Consumed is a very hard hitting word. It is a hard hitting word. And it's a really effective intro as well. It's straight away you get the monumental bass, like a Herculean amount of bass in this record. <laughs> it is slab after slab it's a big after old slab. Yes, yeah, yeah. a lot. That low drone is always there somewhere. Even when it goes away, you're always waiting for it to come back. It's, yeah. it, it stalks the record, which is what I really liked about it. The vocal at the start echoes the vocal at the end of the last record. I so said that, it, it kind of carries on. So even if there is a, there is a theme, you know, that kind of draws them both together, it starts in the same key as well. It, if you listen to them both back to back, the last song of the, the first record fades out and it fades in here. So all you're really getting from back when you listen to them back to back is like a little drop in sound and it comes back up again. It's pretty cool stuff. Um, that, that's like an interesting detail mm-hmm. that I wasn't really aware of. I, I would go back to the title here, Consumed. We, we said about how the first record is somebody facing death and going through death. And then this record, according to its uh, press release, is... What happens afterwards mm-hmm. like, Yeah But If this is about the afterlife I don't really see where consumed comes I don't in. think So I don't think it's about the afterlife It's about what happens And Probably the space Between Death and the afterlife Because The drop The last song Does almost end In a kind of hopeful note so that I, I imagine that this record is supposed to be the space in between. I mean, do I think about it literally? If you want to impose a narrative on it, I suppose consumed is consu- you could be consumed by the earth that you're getting put in it. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, cons- or consumed by worms, I guess, but mm-hmm. it just consumed by a void or nothingness. I mean, if there is any through line or meaning in this record beyond just the bump in that press release, though, I would have hoped it would be more apparent. And the few contact points we have with the artist, and the few contact points really are the titles. Yeah. Mm Because there's no other real contact point other than them and the music. And the music is so subtle Mm -hmm. that you're not... I mean, it's very hard to really figure Mm -hmm. things out from that. So track titles being the majority, I just mean like, the track titles just seem like pretty arbitrary, dreary, ominous words to me. Like most soundtracks. Like soundtrack, the songs and soundtracks are given titles, but they're utterly meaningless because <laughs> yeah. they, they, they play along with music. That's true, that's you know true. I mean? And you're right. Um, but that does make me question the actual narrative here. I mean, the narrative probably in his head, the narrative is like, I had the idea for the sounds of this one and the sounds for that one and that's it. This is what I think that would sound like. 
but then the press does its thing and yeah, the, the PR does its thing and you're kind of like, well, now you're making more of it. But in his head, in interviews, he's like, well, I was obsessed with this idea and this idea and I kind of did what I thought they sound like. So did uh-huh. someone sit down to write a 52-minute voyage into the oblivion mm. or did they just make a bunch of sounds and then sequence them and then retrofit a fucking vague thrilling? I, I don't know. I reckon it, there probably is a narrative in his head for how the music sounds. Like each, each track kind of feels as though it is congruent that it works as a piece so there's obviously some kind of musically yeah, yeah, thematic a, thing musically but i don't know it's you get you, you take out of it i guess what you take out of it right at the end of the day it's <laughs> a very it's <laughs> a very zen approach to reviewing it <laughs> well, i think i think you know but what, what we're kind of trading in at this particular point is the interpretation not just of the music but of the artist's intention of what the music is taken from one quote that he's made or one thing he's or things he said in interviews which are kind of vague, probably deliberately so. And then you've got probably the PR team and the press agent, like who's fabricated the entire narrative and sold it to fucking Pitchfork. This is kind of like, I'm not even indicting him in this. I'm just like, it sounds like PR bullshit. It sounds like he's done a record and they're like, so give me something to say about this. And he's like, I don't know. It's like something to do with death or something. And they're like, (laughs) okay, can we flesh that out? (laughs) All right. Well, the first record was about dying. I suppose this could be about after dying. (laughs) Okay. After dying. Right. Good. We'll go with that. Fuck knows, man. Fuck knows. I can't get inside their heads. Yeah. It's not like a massive personal attack. I'm just like, it fucking smacks of bullshit to me. But anyway, whatever. Uh, Excavation part one, the second track. Song kind of reminds me a bit in places of Scott Walker. You know, yeah, that intense misery is something I associate <laughs> yeah. with the late periods. Yeah, totally. Um, and also the sparseness as well. Like yeah. Scott Walker was yeah. quite sparse. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's a semi-comprehensible vocal sample near the start that sort of fades in and out quite quickly, which which kind of does give you the feel of something slipping away. And then the undulating bass synths just really hammer home that sense of unease. There's also another beat that comes in, which is almost like a heartbeat, and that keeps returning. That's a motif throughout the record as well. Um, just to, sometimes it's in different types of percussion, but it kind of heartbeat, goes throughout it. Electronic um, heartbeat, though, must be like one of the most overused yeah, fucking things totally, in the uh-huh. world. I mean, it, it does sound like the score to a non-existent movie mm-hmm. at this point. Yeah. I think that's fine if A, there's a coherent idea, and I'm not really convinced there is, and B, it bears repeated listens, not just a pat in the back, and I'm not really sure it does. Mm. I like the pace of this when it picks up in the middle, it's like a clicking, which sounds like something's following you, chasing you a little bit, you know? And then the fragmented vocals are just creepy as fuck, man. It it does feel like you're falling into a black abyss, abyss of sound, to be honest. Uh, 
Um, the second one, Excavation Part 2, is really skittish and reminds me of some of that nursery wound coil stuff in particular. <laughs> more industrial it's more machine noise based the samples become quite percussive and I'm a fan of that especially when it goes somewhere but for my own tastes I need development I need direction this one just eventually seems like it's going to go somewhere and then falls away to like a digital burbling sound Mm Disintegrates in, in a way that just feels really like, ah, come on. There's uh, the stereo panning in this song is fucking tremendous, by the way. It's like you're kind of being enveloped by the sound. Um, when it does break away about halfway through and things start to break down and then gradually becomes more op- oppressive but broken, like it does start to fragment, that gives me kind of latter day Nine Inch Nails vibes, especially when a creepy piano comes in, mm. which is totally Trent Reznor all over. Mm. Um, it's quite a stark contrast to Excavation Part 1. It, it does something oh, yeah, completely it's, different. Yeah, it's a um, big difference, yeah. Um, and then the next song is Mara. The strings at the start just made me feel as though it's like someone's tearing open a seam in reality. Like someone's just. A seam in reality. A seam in reality, (laughs) yeah. Just tearing open the seam of reality and stepping into the space in between. The bass drum in it reminds me of Scott Walker again. It's, it reminded me of the, I don't know what song it is, but the Scott Walker song where they're punching meat. Sometimes I feel like a swallow. <laughs> yeah, I forgot the name of it. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of got that wet slapping sound to it. <laughs> Fucking, what a tone that is, man! That's yeah, amazing. it feels similar to that to me. I wish this had somebody slapping me on it. <laughs> maybe that's him tearing open the semen. Yeah, maybe. Um, and I, I, mean, I just, I think this song's boring. I like it, man. I, the strings. Te- it's very technically accomplished, man. But it's just a slog. The strings give it a much more organic feel, and yeah. The dread obviously remains, and then there's snatches of like razor blade synths as well, which I really enjoyed. This one feels more alive and human than the other two, I think, just in terms of the the texture of it. Um, Mister, 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 yeah. Mister. That, that jump scare at the start I was going to say so mm. this starts with a vocal jump scare and that is just like that lost mod pyre necrochristy mm. track from 1984 that I was mentioning earlier on so you know you can see uh, those influences I think mm. uh, quite clearly A 
I'm, I'm quite into the sample kind of percussive chopped up vocal thing. Yeah, that is but freaky as fuck. To this, to me, this one feels a bit like half a song. Mm-hmm. There's the bedrock for something really cool, but the minimalism is kind of ironically too much. Mm-hmm. Like it strangles the beginnings of a decent tune, and I really felt like this one was going to flourish. Mm. It just didn't bother. Ah, fair enough. The garbled vocals, the way that they're cut up, it sounds like they're being cut off in the middle of a breath. Mm. It kind of feels as though, I don't know, I, I imagined it when I was listening to it. It's like I'm try, like I'm being submerged in water and I'm trying to get out. Every single time I get out, I'm taking half a breath and I'm coming back in. But then it turns out I'm not really in water at all. I'm being submerged in black tar, you know, because yeah. towards the end it starts to feel like you're being like completely subsumed by, by the sounds. I thought you were tearing up in the scene again. <laughs> not this time. <laughs> uh, the Mirror Reflecting, part one. Uh, that famous uh, you're dead in the afterlife mirror analogy yeah. <laughs> coming in here uh, I mean I don't know, don't know what the fuck the mirror reflecting is meant to tell us about the afterlife or post death or oblivion it's a slowed down symbol it's a slowed down floor tom it's a fairly expensive sounding reverb plugin. It's a nice compressor it's an even more slowed down symbol mm-hmm. it's an even more slowed down floor tom and then it ends kind of an intro for the for the next part isn't it really those endlessly reverberating sounds are like sit so nicely in the mix it does kind of feel a bit like a hall of mirrors um i think that's you doing all of that heavy lifting well, man. i don't, I don't like, think of it see see when you see when you when you see a film right and they're in like a hall of mirrors style scenario it's, it's always quite reverberate and, and kind of washy sounding when they're talking or when any, any any movements happening but the track could be called the tunnel and you'd be like oh this reminds me of being in a tunnel but I, I, I wouldn't but I just I just put that in my mind of like I'm trying to th- what was it there's probably one there's a film in particular that put me in the mind of like the sonic composition of voices like bouncing off of wall, walls like endlessly mirrored and reverberating like in a tunnel um, tunnels <laughs> tunnel would reverb. make more sense as a death thing anyway um, the mirror reflecting too I mean you're saying like this is a precursor to that The mirror reflecting to up until about three minutes forty just completely passes me by. For about twenty seconds, it sounds like digital diarrhea. And then Weirdly, the high synth part that follows is like pretty. a nineties, like an eighties Nintendo style synth that it, sort of pops in on its own. This is pretty great. Like uh-huh. it's maybe the best sound, and it's probably the best moment on the whole record. Mm-hmm. 
the bass begins to actually do something melodic and the strings get involved. It's still subtle, but it sounds like it might be trying to get somewhere. And for me, it's a kind of glimpse into the fact that this guy is capable of better. But like I said, I don't think he needs to try and be better or push himself because there's an army of writers and people out there telling the world he already is amazing. Mm -hmm. So uh, this song suggests to me like, oh, if this guy really felt any pressure to fucking try harder, he could actually do some pretty fucking cool. I find it actually quite a frustrating song as much as I think it's the best bit on here. I'm like, oh, for fuck's sake. So that is actually possible that I, I can enjoy moments of this. I'm just not allowed to. I, I don't know, man. I don't know about it. Don't know about it. One, one thing that's really interesting about the start of this song is the panning on the bass is slightly off. It's louder in the left channel than it is in the right. So it kind of makes you feel as though you're dropped into like a fucking weird landscape and you can't, like you kind of feel a wee bit off balance because and then, <laughs> then eventually it pans into the centre. It's actually a really cool effect. You have really, really cool intense experiences with your headphones. Aren't yeah, you? <laughs> oh man, I've got a great pair of headphones. So I was fucking loving Apparently it, man. So, I was loving it. Know. But yeah, it's, 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 it's really discombobulating but it's really cool as well. It's yeah. a really nice bit of production, I think. Um, when that synth comes in, it eventually gets doubled up with, well not doubled up, but then strings come in and they're all yeah. playing different counter melodies yeah. and that's a really clever bit I, of composition. I quite liked um, and they become quite clear in the mix towards the end it's as well. not like it's like a massive fucking pop banger it's not like he had to sell out and play some yeah. big fucking slutty auto-tuned hook <laughs> it's like it's incredibly subtle and still very very uh, obtuse but it's just good <laughs> it's just good writing <laughs> it should be more of that uh, Dio is the th uh, second last song yeah um, it's got a Game Boy sample on it I'm pretty sure it's the sound of when you turn a Tetris block. That's cool. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, oh, I don't know if that's where you actually sampled it from, but it's fucking yeah. close. It does like found sounds and all that, so that's pretty cool. This reminded me of like fucking Alien or something like pure space horror. It was weird, man. I don't know why I got that feel from it. I think it's the creepy strings kind of reminded me of, of Is that. It blood um, dipping, dripping down the wall of the dungeon. I mean, I don't think you're in a dungeon at this point. I think you're fucking, <laughs> I think you're floating through space it's or something. fucking but. record. Just as like, right, you guys make up whatever you want. Like, whatever um, it takes for you to think this is good. Just run that fucking play in your head. That's fine. I like, the, the thing I like about this record is that it does evoke imagery in your head and I'm just conveying what it evokes in Out my brain. Um, I think <laughs> I, I, all, I, I, all see, music evokes imagery in your head, I think. Aye, but a lot of music does a lot more work alongside that mm. and actually this is just so formless mm. that it really just le like any vaguely sinister scenario 
you're allowed to just superimpose it on top of this. That's why I think the fucking the, the press release seems so arbitrary. It's like it could have been any man. They could have put a press release out about a guy that's curb crawling around the city, <laughs> following women into their houses. It's like it would have sounded like that as well. It would have sounded like somebody you know committing suicide. It would have sounded like somebody drowning puppies. <laughs> it, it, like it could have sounded like any of those fucking things. <laughs> and that's what I mean. It's just it feels so formless. I, I was really kind of like getting a bit burned out at this point, as you can probably tell. Um, I feel like, you know, I, I, as you said, it conjures images. What I felt like at this point was that there was a movie on in the room and it sounded like it could be a good movie and I wanted to see it, but there was nothing to look at. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh, this sounds like a cool movie. This sounds like a, a, like a creepy, well-made movie. Mm-hmm. Yet there is no movie. It's just a bunch of fucking random creepy sounds. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, ah. It's 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 a bit infuriating at this point. The the one thing I like about this song is it's got an actual rhythm, which there's not a lot of in this record. It does have a beat um, halfway through, um, and then the eerie chopped up vocals again give you the feeling of some incomprehensible horror is about to happen to you. <laughs> there we go. Um, it's quite dark. So it? it is quite dark, yeah. <laughs> um, and then the last song is the drop. Which is the longest song on the record? Thirteen minutes, minutes of minute it. Song. Yeah. Um, it opens almost like an intro, an eighties dance song. Sounds a bit hopeful, but then it's totally not. So Fantano um, did acknowledge that this was a bit boring. Um, whereas I saw it referred to as magisterial in the skinny. Um, I don't know if Magisterial would be the word that would use about this. One of my old colleagues, song. I mean, God love the guy. He, he loves his fucking esoteric music, but uh, I do not think this is particularly Magisterial. Yeah. I find this track hugely frustrating and ultimately incredibly fucking tedious. Um, it's frustrating because it does start brilliantly. You're right. Like, when uneasy, melancholy melody, there's a lot of promise in it. Has a lovely loose drift, like it's not quantized. It's, it's it's really you know it's there's a lack of precision that's really nice, and then he fucking snatches defeat for the jaws of victory because the track just never fully flourishes. Like you've got that, instead it just withers away into all this filtering and then washes a process and and ah uh, here's my enormous reverb plugin. And I'm just like, you did it again. Like, you did something that seemed like it was going to go somewhere and you just decided, uh, why bother? I think the thing about this song is, is, is actually towards the end because you get like five different beats overlapping. Just, it and sounds like a bunch of ideas Kind of cool like, It does feel as though it comes to an end Like a crescendo You know Which I think is quite cool Yeah I really like this record It made me think It's made me experience something I hadn't ever really properly experienced With music before It is existential It does cause you to have the fear <laughs> um, Yeah there's a sense of terror about it Eldritch horror I think is what it is You know like an unknowable horror Because it is a bit formless and vague in places But 
it's got so many weird low drones that you feel as though something bad is just about to happen. Something unknowable is stalking you and about to fucking kill you. And I liked that. I don't listen to it a lot. Um, you need to be in a certain headspace to do it. When fucking I, hell. You're yeah, right. When I do listen to it, I tend to listen sitting down and listen to it all the way through. And you know what? To me, to me, like I know that you said it was a slog in places, but I found that I find that the, the, the 51 minutes of this record passes really quickly. Um, I was wondering who it was that sits and listens through these entire albums, and I now know that it's you and Ari Aster. <laughs> <laughs> Only occasionally. I mean, it's not, it's, yeah, it's not a record that you, like you said earlier on, you would put on. It's a nice experience. Well, it's not a nice experience. Fuck knows what it's a you're cool working, experience. You're working on a book then, and fuck knows what's going to be <laughs> in that book if this is what you're listening Yeah, I mean, <laughs> that's a fair point. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, look, I'll break this down into a few different categories. You didn't like it, basically. I, I didn't enjoy it. That's I different. To enjoy I didn't it. enjoy yeah. it. Mm-hmm. Right. I'll break it, look, I'll break it down. I've got it under headings here. Right. So, technique. This is frequently more sound design than music to me. In fact, I think his career is frequently more sound design than music. That's why he takes the soundtrack so well. Exactly. I applaud Tax and Cloak's use of preamps, and I think I applaud his ability to buy nice plugins. Well done. That's good. He's got good kit. He makes it sound good. I can totally dig someone soundtracking, like a like I said, like a a non-existent curb crawler or a home invasion. Um, and after two albums, and I guess but three EPs are doing that. He started soundtracking actual moving images, which made perfect sense to me. And he does make perfect sense as a soundtracker of films where you want exactly this vibe. It doesn't make any fucking sense to me on its own. And that is where that whole red flag thing came in of like, why the fuck is this so unanimously acclaimed? Like, why can I not find a negative word about this fucking record anywhere? And that kind of brings me to the phenomenon of it. I don't know if I can think of a more unanimously celebrated artist. I mean, don't get me wrong, there's bigger artists in the world, but I mean, an artist that has such consistently good press, or at least in in the publications that matter, shall we say. Um, So given the sound of it, I think this is vastly overachieved, and the guy himself has walked into some of the most high prestige, and I would presume fairly well-paying jobs, of anyone in his field. Yeah, he just did the Blue Beetle, which is a big yeah. DC film, you know. Yeah, so he is absolutely not unsung. This record, whilst not being a big, big seller, is absolutely not unsung. I would say it's very oversung. Um, how did he get there? How did he get made man status? Fuck knows, man. Faustian Pact, Compromat on all the journalists <laughs> in the world. I don't know, but this... Hacks and Cloak phenomenon is the Emperor's new clothes writ large for me. And I don't really put a lot of that at his door. He's got no control of that. It's just like there's loads of people doing this kind of music and for some reason the fucking fickle finger of fate has like pointed at Hacks and Cloak. Um, but I certainly don't think he's felt any need to push himself once that's happened. Mm-hmm. The concept, as I, as I mentioned, the concept around this album feels reverse engineered to me. I think he could have released a press release that said almost anything. I'll, I do take on board that you said the first one, the end of it, segues sort of into the start of this, so there is continuity there. But that aside, this music could be about fucking anything, man. I'm not hearing a particular journey. I do agree. Consistent sense of dread, but that doesn't make for an actual narrative or concept to me. And so ultimately the enjoyment, where is the pleasure for me in listening to this? It's interesting, definitely. I just don't really relate to interesting as a listening mode over any sustained period of time. It's something you do in the short term, like you know, cerebrally appraise something like, oh, that's that's fucking quite cool. That's a cool effect, right? Cool. But uh, yeah, do I go home and listen to it? No, could I? 
I can't imagine putting this on. I think it would actually actively just irritate me. Um, ultimately, and I said, I don't think this is Axon Cloak's fault. He's just a guy who has been ridden that fucking wave of like mass fucking delusion that happens in the media. It's not that it's not good. It's good, but it's not that good. And it, it's not that he doesn't deserve some success. He deserves some success, but he doesn't deserve anything like that level of success. He is an accomplished film scorer and he's got to where it probably makes sense that he should be. And I don't begrudge him that. But the process of getting there feels so contrived and inorganic. Like, Hacks and Cloak could fall into a barrel of thumbs and come out sucking a tit. I, I, I just, good for him. Good for him. I don't want to fucking listen to this again, Mark. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I've had a whole week of it. I will add, by the way, see when last time I stopped listening to it, the autoplay on my Spotify went on to Ben Frost, and Ben Frost is much better. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, no consensus here then. <laughs> uh, shall we do a Nexus? We shall do a Nexus. Oh, God, it's almost light relief, even though I know that it's probably going to be grim as fuck as well. <laughs> um, so to explain the concept to the Nexus to listeners, uh, we often... Take a suggestion from the audience, but this last week it was Mark's turn, so this week it's my turn. Uh, I've suggested uh, a name, and we have to, f- you know, sort of six degrees of separation. Kevin Bacon uh, join uh, this week's artist uh, to the name I picked, mm-hmm. and the name I picked was Greg Wallace. Greg, Greg with a double G, a double G, like the famous bakery. Mm-hmm. Um, Greg Wallace, uh, who's the host of Master MasterChef and mm-hmm. other stuff. Yeah, celebrity MasterChef, mm-hmm. Gogglebox, all that kind of stuff. A complicated series of connections between different things. Mark, this was yours, so you go first. Okay, so uh, Bobby produced the Go Frap album, Silver Eye. Mm-hmm. Gofrap appeared in a soundtrack for a film called Nine Songs that alongside Primal Scream. You ever heard of Nine Songs? I've heard of Primal Scream. Um, it's a film about a couple who meet at a gig, then meet each other at other gigs and have intense sexual experiences after them, apparently. Good for them. Great, great for them. Um, Primal Scream were actually fairly integral to the foundation of Creation Records, even though they didn't exist at the time. So the guitarist of Primal Scream... The guy who would later go on to be the guitarist of Primal Scream, Andrew Innes, um, was in a band with Alan McGee, and when that band broke up, it kind of spurned Alan McGee on to yeah. um, Creation Records. And then obviously Primal Scream would later sign to that label. Alan McGee, musician, label owner. Things about King Tut's Things about King Tut's in the 90s. He signed Oasis, that's why he was singing Did about, he? He was singing you about know, King You know, that Tuts. is so weird. Yeah. King Tut's have never mentioned that. I wonder why not. Oh, they, really should, strange, they, should really, they should put that on a flyer or yeah. something. In 1993, he signed Oasis, which is fronted, of course, by Liam Gallagher. It is. In 2020, right, Liam Gallagher was on the Jonathan Ross show mm-hmm. alongside Matt Lucas. <laughs> okay. And they got into a bit of a tete-a-tete. Um, I seem to recall this, yeah. Yeah, because basically Matt was saying that he knew Blur and Liam was like, how do you know Blur? And he's like, well, I, I toured with them when The Great Escape was released. And then he turned to Jonathan and said, it was actually a pretty good record. And then Liam just said, I didn't sell a lot, though, did it? And then they got into a bit of an argument and apparently Matt Lucas is really close friends with Damon Albarn. Um, but Jonathan Ross was loving it. He's like, I can't believe these guys are having beef on my TV show. That's <laughs> fucking brilliant. <laughs> um, so that's pretty cool. Matt Lucas is obviously best, well, 
I say obviously, probably obviously best known for his work with David Williams and Little Britain. Can I interject? Mm-hmm. Do you know what Matt Lucas was doing on tour with Blur? He was supporting them. I don't know if he, he was, was a performer. I don't know if he was in a band or just performing as stand up or something. Oh. But that's what he said. He said yeah. he was supporting them. He was opening for them. Oh. So, Britpop pop was a weird thing. Like there's a crossover with comedy in that all the time. I guess. Eh? So, remember Nirvana toured with Bobcat Goldthwait opening for them. Yeah, so it's not unheard of. <laughs> um, but yeah, Little Britain was the thing he did with David Williams, which is not aged particularly well. No. <laughs> David Williams, after Little Britain in the late 2000s, briefly had his own TV show called Williams and Friend. And Friend. And Friend, yeah. Williams and Friend. And there was a skit in one of the TV shows called Fussy Masterchef. (laughs) And he played uh, John Turord alongside Harry Hill, who played Greg Wallace. Ah, okay. Good one. Uh, Mine is a bit darker. (laughs) I need something light. (laughs) Hacks and Cloak scored Blue Beetle, which was a turkey of a movie. Did Uh, you see it? Um, I saw a bit of it. Mm. Didn't yeah. get to see the rest of it. Um, I like the guy that I like the guy that plays Blue Beetle because he's really good in Cobra Kai and he's become a much better actor as the seasons have gone on. It would have been cool to see him in that role, but also it's a DC film. It's probably garbage. DC, so. yeah. Uh, both Blue Beetle and uh, Batman are set in the DC universe, and uh, the two characters make crossover appearances. Uh, I think Blue Beetle, the character, is a big fan of Batman in the story mm-hmm. before he actually gets the powers. And uh, the Epics, MGM Plus, I think they're now called Epics, um, they, they, they made a series called Pennyworth, which is basically the prehistory of Batman, yeah. Al- Alfred Pennyworth. Um, the actor Ben Aldridge plays a young Thomas Wayne, Batman's da. Ben Aldridge also played Rivers Cuomo uh-huh. in a pilot of a sitcom directed by and based on Rivers Cuomo's life called Detour, like <laughs> Detour, but D-E capital T-O-U-R, mm. for Fox in 2015, the, the series was never picked up. Wow, that's really interesting. Yeah. Um, Rivers Cuomo also now plays a character called Feathers the Pigeon in the new CBB's musical show, Yuki. That's pretty funny. <laughs> <laughs> He's not the only one, they've got a bunch of musicians in that. J.B. Gill is also a TV host on CBB's. Uh, he's a host of Down on the Farm, and he was also in the band JLS. JLS, oh. a bunch of fucking wrongins. Can't go into details here, but I'll tell you off air. J.B. Gill uh, of JLS was on Celebrity Masterchef, serving meatballs to 100 bus drivers in East London. Somebody's got to do it. Here's, I mean, I could just skip this bit and go straight to the fact that Greg Wallace was a host of Masterchef. You should. I shouldn't, because... <laughs> Stephen Port. Stephen Port. A.K.A. The Grinder Killer. The Grinder Killer. Murdered four Wait men. Wait a second. <laughs> <laughs> What's going on here? Murdered four men between 2014 and 2015. I see that guy's that. <laughs> he's a multiple, like, like multiple sex offender. He's currently in jail for the rest of his life. Such was the severity uh, of his sentence and his, the crimes. Stephen Port was on that episode of Celebrity Masterchef as part of JB Gill's team serving all those bus drivers and he's on the he's on the show. Holy fuck. And it's at the time that it was happening. I think it was maybe just slightly before it, but we don't know how far back his sexual assault history went before he started actually killing people. But he's on that show and that show was broadcast as he was out there murdering guys. Um, wow. And uh, weirdly, it's a strange little detail, a dog walker discovered one of the victim's bodies in a churchyard, right? A month later, the same dog walker discovered another body in the same churchyard. Slop, sloppy work from that boy. Let's think about that for a second, right? 
Pick a new churchyard. You find one body in a churchyard. Are you going back to that fucking churchyard? He'll never think it's me if we go back. I mean, he's, do you think he does wonder like, I mean, I wonder if we'll get three. Maybe, I He still goes back just waiting to see if he gets a full set. There's definitely something about serial killers and, you know, wanting to get caught. Like just rubbing it in the face of the law. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Well, there you go. Same dog walker though. I mean, what are the fucking chances? Um, Probably quite high. Well, I don't think, I don't think it's on the dog walker though. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And yeah, so obviously Celebrity MasterChef's hosted by Greg Wallace. Um, Greg Wallace, who also, by the way, the reason I picked him is because he was just on the chat of a WhatsApp group I'm on because he went viral recently after this Telegraph article about his daily routine where he goes into the most Alan Partridge territory with just ridiculous fucking details on his daily routine, his breakfast and his keep fit and his autistic son and oh my god it's it's just no self-awareness pure partridge mm, that's cool there you go good work end of well that needs rinsed out of my system mark so yeah. next week i suggest we do scooter scooter <laughs> fuck off <laughs> <laughs> or some kind of euro dance i hate scooter maybe we can do something like aqua or um what's the, what aqua record Everyone Barbie Girl was oh, on. Oh, so you don't know. But whatever one Barbie Girl wasn't on, <laughs> that'll talk, be unsung. She's talking shit then. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I'm delirious from the misery. But yeah, well, we did it. I feel I at least know about Hacks and Cloak now, and I can speak with authority when I say it's incredibly underwhelming. So what are we thinking then, legitimately, for next week? Well, you know, Mark, I was going to suggest that we do a kind of documentary episode on something uh, <laughs> I've dropped to you before, but yeah. genuinely... Given the abundance of misanthropy that <laughs> has been about this week, I think we have to kick that back a week, man. Yeah. So, uh, in two weeks' time, we'll do an extremely grim and I think extremely interesting documentary style episode. Next week, I don't know, we should do a survey. Something bubbly and dancing. It absolutely needs to be upbeat. Yeah. Purely because I cannot face another week of that. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. Well, see you, see you, see you here same time next week. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hope so. <laughs> After that, start cording them off the bridges. Okay, take care. Bye.